Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. If there's one thing I want you to learn from our study in the book of Revelation, it's that, yes, we do have hope. Let's talk about it coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles. I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today, we are finishing our in-depth study in the book of Revelation, and today we're going to be looking at the answer to that question that I first asked you when we started this study. The very first session in our study of the book of Revelation, I asked you, is there hope for us? Well, today we are going to answer that question. Yes, indeed, there is hope. Hopefully you've been learning that all through our study. But today is our final session, and in the outline, you'll note that it's called Revealing the Great Hope of the Bride of Christ. So let's look at this great hope. It starts in verse 7, chapter 22, starting in verse 7. And this is where Jesus kind of breaks into the narrative and declares the hope of his coming. Listen to verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the prophecy written in this scroll. So he is saying in a very declarative way that he is coming for us one day. And that is our hope. Now, let me, let me explain again what the biblical concept of hope is when it refers to God. Whenever the word hope is used in the Bible in context of the Lord, it's always looking at it as a fact. Not something that we hope might happen. No, it is a fact that it will happen. Thus, our great hope in salvation and in the Lord's return is described in the Bible as a fact and that we can count on this fact and it will encourage us when we meditate about it. So that is our hope and that is the answer to that question. Yes, we have a hope. And it's not something that might happen, that we wish would happen. No, it is a fact. It will happen. And meditating on it is what gives us hope. His return is every Christian's great hope. Now let's look at how the angel declares the hope of justice. Look at verse 8. Revelation 22, starting in verse 8. I, John, am the one who saw and heard all these things. And when I saw and heard these things, I fell down to worship the angel who showed them to me. But again, he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in the scroll. Worship God. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words you have written, for the time is near. Let the one who is doing wrong continue to do wrong. The one who is vile continue to be vile. 
The one who is good continue to do good, and the one who is holy continue in holiness. So John's first reaction when he hears this voice of the Lord booming that he is coming soon is to fall down and worship the angel next to him. But this fierce angel quickly rebukes him and says, no, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. I'm just like you and your brother prophets and and all the brothers and sisters who have served the Lord. Then the angel declares our hope that justice will prevail. And being a hardcore member of a very fierce species, he pronounces his desire for evil people to continue so that they will be judged. Now understand this, almost every time an angel appears in the Bible, they have to say, do not fear, because they are such a fierce looking being. And this angel is a hardcore angel. He is in Revelation 21 verse 9, recognized as by John as one of the angels that held the bowls of judgment that God poured out on the earth. In verse 9, Revelation 21, verse 9, we read, the one of the, Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this is the same angel that goes on throughout the rest of the book, showing him the different things about heaven. And so he's there on this tour with John when Jesus starts booming out and breaking the narrative with his declarations of our hope. So this hardcore angel is familiar with what judgment is, and he has seen the evil of man, the evil of murderers, those who worship the beast, those who worship the dragon, those who have used people as cattle, and some who have even sacrificed people. All through the ages of human history, he has seen the evil that is in men's hearts. And yet he has also seen the love and the mercy and all the fruits of the Spirit from those who have hearts dedicated to Jesus. So he pronounces his desire that those who are evil will continue to do evil and get their just reward. Likewise, he hopes that the righteous will continue so that they too can reap their rewards. And what it's talking about is this principle that Paul talked about in Galatians, about whatever you sow, that you also reap. In Galatians 6, starting in verse 7 through 9, we read this. Don't be misled. Remember that you can't ignore God and get away with it. You will always reap what you sow. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful desires will harvest the consequences of decay and death. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So don't get tired of doing what is good. Don't get discouraged and give up, for we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. So that is the principle that the angel is going on. He wants those who have sown seeds of evil throughout their lives to reap justice, a just judgment for their sins. Likewise, he wants those who have planted seeds of righteousness, who have followed Jesus, believed in Jesus, and taken 
Jesus as their Savior and Lord and King and walked in his righteousness. He wants those people to reap also a great harvest of reward for their righteousness. And in a sense, he breaks down all of humans into four categories. He says this in verse 11. He says, those who are doing wrong, and this is the Greek word for the unrighteous. So he's saying those who are unrighteous, he wants them to remain unrighteous for judgment. Then the second group he talks about is those who are vile. And the Greek there is talking about filth, moral filth. So these are morally filthy people. Then he breaks down a third group. He says, those who are doing good. And the Greek word for this means the righteous, those who are righteous. And then he goes on one more category. He says, those who are holy. And the Greek word here is the sanctified. In other words, those who have set themselves apart to serve God. So he says, if you're righteous, continue in your righteousness. If you're a believer, continue in your believer, in other words, in your belief, in other words. But then he goes on one step. He says, those who have set themselves apart to God's service, don't give up. Keep serving God. That is what the angel is declaring, that he wants justice served. And that's one of our hopes, that Christ, when he comes back, will bring justice that the evil will be judged, but the righteous and those who live holy lives also get a just reward for their service. Next in this chapter, we see that Jesus again breaks into the narrative with his declaration of hope, the hope of his gospel. Let's pick this up in Revelation 22, starting in verse 12. See, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay all according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they can enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let each one who hears them say, come. Let the thirsty ones come. Anyone who wants to, let them come and drink the water of life without charge. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words of this prophetic book, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. He who is faithful witness to all these things Say, yes, I am coming soon. Now, a lot of people debate whether or not all these words I've just read are totally spoken by Jesus, or if it's a combination of Jesus and the angel, and then John picking up the narrative again. I think these are all words of Jesus, and I'll tell you why. Uh, in these words, he talks about judgment, and only God can judge. And also, he talks about 
the living waters. And we're going to get into that in a second, but that shows Jesus' passion for something that he preached when he was on earth. First of all, though, let's look at what the word gospel means. It means good news. And so what he's doing in this passage from verses 12 through 20 is that he's declaring the hope we have for his good news, the gospel, the good news of his salvation. And he talks about the good news of his return and bringing with him the reward for his faithful servants. And that's in verse 12. Then he goes on and talks about the good news that all history and the future is summed up in him. This is when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this is in verse 13. That's Jesus' way of saying all of human past, all of our eternity, all of our future and eternity, all past and future is summed up in him. He is the center of creation. But then he goes on and he talks about the good news that salvation is a personal choice. And this is when he's really getting into his gospel of salvation. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they can enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all those who love to live a lie. So here we see that, again, he emphasizes that salvation is a personal choice. He says you can choose to wash your robes. In other words, wash away your sins in the blood of Jesus. He says those who do that, those who choose that, will get the heavenly reward of eternal life in the new Jerusalem. But then he also points to the group that chose to reject his salvation, chose to reject his gospel, and chose to keep their sin. And that's the same way it is now. The choice is always there for people. You can choose the dream of eternity in heaven or the nightmare of eternity in hell. Now, I want to talk to some of my friends I have three friends that I've known all the way through high school who are not saved yet. And their initials are A, P, and L. A, P, and L. Three of my friends who I beg you, I know that you are watching some of these videos. If you watch this one, please understand this choice is real. You can choose to have your sins washed away by believing in Jesus, by his sacrifice, his blood that he poured out to forgive us for our sins on the cross, and that he rose again on the third day to prove that that payment was enough for our sins, and that God accepts all who will believe in him. Please put your trust in him. Take him as your boss, your king, your Lord of your life, and believe in your heart his gospel. And if you start following his way, you will have this eternal salvation. You will choose the new Jerusalem. You will choose the dream. But for if you don't, my friends, then you're choosing an eternity in hell. And anyone who rejects Jesus and refuses to believe in him will 
choose an eternal destination of hell in the lake of fire. If you recall last chapter, Revelation 21, verse 8, the people who refuse to believe are called cowards. In verse 8, it says, but the cowards who turn away from me. All right, so the people who just do not have the courage to give up their sins and die themselves and let Jesus have control of their lives. Those are the unbelievers. Those are the ones who would rather hold on to their sins than give up the pleasures of the flesh for eternal pleasure with Jesus in heaven. And I hope everyone will make the right choice. But again, Jesus is saying the gospel is, part of the good news of the gospel of salvation is that it is a personal choice. Then he goes on and talks about the good news that Jesus sent this prophecy to the church. Listen again to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. So Jesus is saying emphatically, this prophecy, this book of Revelation is true, is trustworthy, and that he authorized it to be sent to the churches. Now let's talk about this, this authorization. Only someone who has the authority of the king can authorize that a message be sent. And Jesus answers that point when he also goes back and answers a riddle that he gave the Pharisees long ago when he walked on this earth. You see, right before Jesus was crucified, he was grilled by the Pharisees in many ways with certain trick questions. And these are all recorded in the Gospels. And then, after they asked all these trick questions, he asked them a question, because he answered all their questions, and they were astonished. But instead of believing in him, they hardened their hearts. And so Jesus asked them a question, a riddle, if you will. And this is in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Then, surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, he is the son of David. Jesus responded, then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call him Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David called him Lord, how can he be his son at the same time? No one could answer him. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus asked the Pharisees, how can the Messiah be the descendant of David, but also the Lord of David? And they couldn't answer him. But here in Revelation 22, verse 18, he, or excuse me, verse 16, he gives the answer. He says, I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. You see, this establishes Jesus as the creator. It confirms that. We know that from studying throughout the Bible, but this says it emphatically, that he is the creator, he is the source of David, and yet he is also the heir to his throne because he came and walked earth as a man, born of the Virgin Mary, who was a descendant of David. So this declares his 
godship, if you will. It declares that he is the creator, and it firmly establishes his authority to send this revelation, this prophetic revelation to the churches. But Jesus goes on in this wonderful speech at the end of the Bible. He says that the good news that salvation is free for all who will come. Let's look at verse 17 again. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears them say, come. Let the thirsty ones come, anyone who wants to. Let them come and drink the water of life without charge. Now, this is definitely, I think, proof that this whole little speech is from Jesus' mouth. It's not the angel speaking, and it's not John writing the narrative. This really goes back to a wonderful, impassioned plea that Jesus made when he walked on earth. Somewhere along the middle, the beginning or the middle of his ministry, Jesus attended the festival, the Feast of Shelters, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which, as we've learned, is a prophetic sign of the millennial kingdom. And all the people of Israel were supposed to attend one of this festival. So he's there on the last day of this festival, and the Spirit of the Lord is just takes hold of him, and he has this impassioned plea for the people. This is found in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, If you are thirsty, come to me. If you believe in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow out from within. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered his, into his glory. So here is Jesus giving that impassioned plea there at the Feast of Tabernacles to believe in him because he, he knows the symbolism of this feast. It's when he is king and everyone is wanting to be there with him there and worshiping him. And he knows the symbolism. And so he cries out to him, I can give you the living water. Come, come believe in me. And that's the same thing we see here in the end of the book of Revelation. Come, the spirit and the bride say, come, get the living water. It's free without cost. And that's a beautiful, beautiful verse. It's one of my favorite verses. In fact, my first mission team that I started, we called it Come Ministries, and we used the word come as an acronym, Christians on Move Evangelism. And it was based on this verse because we wanted everyone to come to the salvation without cost. Our ministry was based on love offerings, and we didn't charge anyone anything. And I want to tell you something. That is a powerful truth. The Gospel is supposed to be given freely as we beg people to come and get the living water that can purify their souls. But Jesus goes on to declare even more wonderful truths of hope in this 
fantastic speech of his at the end of the Bible. He goes on to proclaim the good news that God will protect the truth contained in this prophecy. This book of Revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John to send to the churches. Listen to how he says he'll protect it, starting in verse 18. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words of this prophetic book, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. He who is a faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. So Jesus is declaring himself the faithful witness and also the protector of this revelation that he gave John. And he warns people not to take away or not to add. Now this goes to uh, some common terms that's used in uh, teaching the Bible. And there's two groups of theologians, actually three groups, but there's a, a liberal group and we're not talking about politics here. But there's a liberal group, and that means liberal theologians tend to take away from the Bible. For instance, they say Jesus wasn't really born of the virgin, or Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh. But then on the other extreme, there's also some false theologians, but they are called legalistic theologians. And these are the ones that add to the Bible saying, oh, you can't do certain things or you'll lose your salvation or you shouldn't go see movies. You can't do this. You can't do that. And they are adding their rules, just like the Pharisees did, to the truth of Scripture. But the third group, the one that is always right, is the one that just follows what the Bible says. And they are not taking away and they are not adding to Scripture. They just teach what the Bible says. And so this is a warning to the liberal and the legalistic theologians that they are playing with fire when they do this. I also think this is a warning to the Nicolaitans, those who think they are on a higher uh, level than the people, those who think that pastors and priests are a higher level than those who are just regular people in church. And we've talked about this over and over because it's a common theme throughout Revelation. But Nicolaitanism is a sin, and we are all brothers and sisters. And Jesus himself said, don't even let anyone call you a pastor or a priest or a rabbi. But another problem with the Nicolaitans is that they think they can understand things more than the people. At least that's what they try and say. And so many of them refuse to teach the book of Revelation. Now, they may not have taken away words from this book, and they certainly haven't added to it. But they aren't teaching it at all. And they'll give a pompous excuse. Well, there's just so many people in the laity that don't understand these things. And it's just so many different points of view. So I don't teach it because it causes controversy. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. They really, the real reason they don't teach the book of Revelation is because they are lazy and they don't get themselves in a serious mode of study to dig down deep and see what the Holy Spirit is revealing. And this is a warning to them. They better start teaching this book because the time is at hand. In fact, in the very beginning of the book, you remember that John said, blessed is anyone who reads this book to the church. 
And so pastors who are doing this are robbing themselves of a great blessing. If you don't teach the book of Revelation, I'm telling you, you're robbing yourself of a great blessing and you're robbing your people of a great blessing is all also. So this is a warning to people like that, the Nicolaitans who will not teach this scripture. But this is also a warning to those who try and profit off the gospel. Remember, he says, come to the living waters and it is free. It is without cost. And there's been plenty of people in throughout the history of Christianity that tried to use the gospel and preaching as a way to get rich. Now, the Bible's clear. It says that if you're learning from someone and you have a Passover church, you should pay him a decent wage. The Bible's clear on that. You're not supposed to expect him to starve to death. But we all know this privilege has been abused by so many throughout history. And through fake faith healers or fake evangelists or TV evangelists that are just making millions upon millions upon millions. And their whole message seems to be begging people for money and promising them some blessed uh, life or a rich life or a blessing if they give their money. This is what's commonly called the prosperity gospel. And this is a warning. Jesus is giving a warning to those who try and profit off the gospel because he says the living water is to be free without cost. And finally, he gives encouragement. In this wonderful speech, he gives encouragement for believers that he will come. Again, verse 20, 20 verse 20a, he says this, he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. So this is an encouragement. And again, don't get confused by people who say, well, Jesus is going to come soon, and he didn't, so that means this Bible is not true. Again, remember what we learned, that in prophetic speak, and the way the Jewish culture looked at things, they looked at things as ages. And each age had two days in it, like, for instance, the age of the patriarchs. It consisted of 2,000 years. A 1,000 years being a day is what they thought. So in spiritual terms. So the age of the patriarchs was 2,000 years. Then the age of Israel, when they reached their peak, the age of the Jews was roughly around 2,000 years. And then now the church age, the age where the, of the Gentiles is what the Jews call it, the age of the Gentiles. It is roughly 2,000 years. And so he's saying, look, I am coming soon because when Jesus gave this message to John. They were in the last age. He told them, look, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And their questions kept saying, when will the end of the age be? Because they knew this end of the age, the time of the Gentiles, when it ended, is when the Messiah would set up his kingdom. And so he again is giving us that encouragement that, yes, he is coming. And for those of us who are living in the last part of these days, that's why it's called the last days, man, you should start really thinking about this encouragement. He is coming. And I would encourage you to take these truths and these warnings to heart. And if you're a Christian in America, you need to start living a holy life. Set yourself apart from sin and dedicate yourself to serving God and spreading his gospel and making disciples. That's what we were told to do. 
I hope you as a brother or sister who have gone through this study have been quickened in your spirit that you need to get on the ball. You need to quit just going to church and sitting on your pew and giving your money. You need to be serving God. Christianity is more than a bus ticket to heaven. It is a lifestyle of service to the king. Just like we learned last week, and I'm going to read this verse again. This is from the Apostle Peter, and one of Jesus' closest friends, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and verse 11 through 13. And God has also commanded that the heavens and the earth will be consumed by fire on the day of judgment, when ungodly people will perish. Since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives you should be living. You should look forward to that day and hurry it along, the day when God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world where everyone is right with God. So I encourage you to take these words to heart in Jesus' last speech in the Bible. Take it and meditate on it. Don't live a lazy life as a Christian. Remember, since we know that one day uh, God will destroy this earth and the current heaven with fire and create a new heaven, a new earth, we need to start living holy lives now. We need to get ready and become a purified bride now and be ready for his return. Finally, we also hear that John makes a declaration of hope. See, Jesus declared the hope of his coming. And then the angel declared the hope of justice. And then Jesus gave us his declaration of the hope of his gospel. And now John is signing off in this prophecy, signing his final words to this book. And he gives his declaration of the hope of God's grace. In verse 20b and verse 21, listen to this. John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Now, this phrase, come, Lord Jesus, uh, is kind of interesting. John is just pleading out of excitement and passion. Yes, Jesus, come soon. Come now. Remember, he was in prison at Patmos, and he was saying, please, Jesus, come. But this thought, this passion is also coming from a common phrase that was very popular to say in the early church. Paul uh, quotes this phrase, it's an Aramaic phrase, and it's called Maranatha. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, he says this, If anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Maranatha. And some translations will go ahead and translate it, and it translates to be, our Lord come. So it's two words, two Aramaic words, and it's put together, Maron, which means our Lord, and then Natha, come. Please come, pleading with him to come, just like John was. So this is a common expression in the early days of the church, Maranatha. And you may have heard this because many times Christians will say this now as a way to encourage each other, Maranatha. And that is our prayer, isn't it? Oh, Lord, please come soon. Maranatha. But then he signs off with this beautiful sentence. John does. He writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Now, 
And the word grace is a comes from the Greek, obviously, but it comes from a, originally from the Hebrew concept, a word called hesed. And hesed, it can be defined as a strong, undying, loyal, loving kindness. This is God's motivation, his hesed. It is based on his loyalty and his desire to give his love and kindness to his creation. Hesed. And whenever a Hebrew person heard the word hesed, they realized it was coming from someone who was stronger from them and that it was talking about an undying loyalty. And it was also talking about loving kindness being poured out on them. Hesed. And this is where we get the concept of grace. We first learn about this word hesed in the life of Moses. Moses wrote about his encounter when he finally got to see the glory of God. Remember, we talked about how he could not see God's face, and God put him in a cleft of a rock and covered him there with his hand while he walked by. We talked about that last session. But listen to what happened when God did walk by, what he said. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and called out his own name, the Lord, as Moses stood there in his presence. He passed in front of Moses and said, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God. I am slow to anger and rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. I show this unfailing love to many thousands by forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Even so, I do not leave sin unpunished, but I punish the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generations. So when God hid Moses in that rock, he walked by saying, I am the Lord. He was using his personal name, Jehovah, which means I am. So he was saying, Jehovah, Jehovah, I am, I am God. And then he goes on to say, I am rich in hesed. Unfailing love and faithfulness is how this translation records it. Other translations call it uh, unfailing love. Others call it uh, a loyal loving kindness. Each translation is different, but it all goes back to this word hesed. And un a strong, undyingly loyal, loving kindness. And that's what he is saying here. I am rich in hesed. I am rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. And so that's what John meant when he wrote, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with y'all. May the hesed of Jesus be with y'all. And we know he was referring to hesed because in his gospel, he brings this concept up again. In John chapter 1, verse 17, he records this. For the law was given through Moses. God's unfailing love and faithfulness, it's the same words that we read in when God uh, walked by Moses. God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. So John understood. He understood that God's grace, his hesed, comes through Jesus. And he is saying to everyone who reads this book, may God's hesed, May the hesed of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's my prayer too, brothers and sisters. When you go through dark times, 
remember that Jesus has brought God's strong, undying, loyal, loving kindness to you. You can count on it. It will never fail. He will never fail you. And one day, he will come and get us all. And that, my dear friends, is our hope, our great hope that we can be confident in because we know it's a fact and it gives us encouragement. It gives us the hope that we need to walk this life on a day-to-day basis. So brothers and sisters, I hope you have enjoyed this study in the book of Revelation as much as I have. And I hope that you will continue to meditate on these truths. And I hope that you will constantly keep your eye to the sky. And until we see each other in heaven one day, I also hope and pray that you read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also, consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.